Welcome to the Terrorist Therapist Show on Renegade Talk Radio with your host, Dr. Carroll. Though you may not realize that the ongoing threat of terrorism is affecting your life and that of your loved ones. Each week, Dr. Carroll analyzes the hottest topics in terror and helps you and your family reach your dreams despite living in a time of terror. What happens in Syria doesn't stay in Syria. Welcome to the Terrorist Therapist Show. I'm Dr. Carroll, a psychiatrist and your terrorist therapist. Well, yes, what happens in Syria, unfortunately, doesn't stay in Syria. Not that it should be in Syria either. There are uh, scores of people, including children, being killed and wounded and gassed by chemical weapons. So what is happening there is causing terrorists and chemicals to expand all over the globe. More and more red lines are being crossed. And you know, the problem is that so many of us in the States and outside of Syria think, oh, well, um, that's just happening in the Middle East. It's crazy over there anyway. Oh, it's sad that they're gassing people, but you know, what are we gonna do about it, right? Well, <laughs> I think if you started thinking about how um, that is causing more terrorists to leave uh, Syria and to bring their attacks to the West, that um, maybe it would seem like more of a pressing problem, not just you know sad for the people living there, but for us not living there. Um, you know, the easier it gets for chemical weapons to be used anywhere in the world, the easier it's going to be, or the more, you know, the, the more desensitized we're going to be to it happening anywhere. You know, we think about terrorist attacks in the West being caused by ramming attacks by vans and cars, uh, explosives, suicide bombers, knives, and so on. But we, and we've become desensitized to that. Um, you know, we go, we vacillate between being in denial about these attacks and being desensitized to it. Oh, another ramming attack. Um, you know, there were attacks in Germany and uh, recently and um, ramming attacks, but, you know, the German government was quick to say that they weren't terrorist attacks when really the investigations haven't possibly been completed. So do we want to get to the point where we are desensitized to chemical weapons and then biological weapons and then nuclear weapons? I mean, that's the way it would go. So we, there, for many reasons, one, because of the human toll that it is taking in Syria, the chemical attacks that have been unleashed just recently, and, um, and because of what that means for, for on a more global scale in terms of um, us becoming these kinds of attacks, chemical, chemical attacks being used by terrorists fleeing Syria and coming to countries like the United States. You know, there has just been a, um, a report that came out that was measuring global terrorism. And it showed that even though the Islamic State has lost control of 98% of its territory, so, you know, that is causing a lot of people to think, oh, look, we're winning the war and we don't have to worry about terrorism anymore. No. <laughs> 
Um, the threat posed by foreign terrorist fighters has become more global than ever before. The threat of terrorism, in other words, being spread from the Middle East is worse than ever before. And it is bringing bigger and more complex challenges than ever before, because a lot of the terrorists are more diverse in terms of age and gender and experience in these conflict zones. Um, if they aren't killed in the conflict zones like Syria, they um, bring with them a lot of experience in terms of how to create attacks, which now includes chemical attacks. So, and what is happening with these um, terrorists that come to foreign countries? If you look at, at Europe, for example, um, the, the uh, prison sentences the, that terrorists get when they're convicted of terrorist acts are relatively minor. In the European Union, the average prison sentence for a terrorist offense was five years in 2016. So what happens when they're in prison for five years? Do you think that they decide, oh, I'm gonna be good when I get out, I'm not gonna be a terrorist anymore? Um, or do you think that they are gonna continue with their plans and even be more angry because of having been in jail in the country um, and get worse, not to mention, well, I have mentioned in previous podcasts about how, and I'm sure you've heard of how um, in prisons, that is a breeding ground for terrorists. So the more terrorists that you stick in the prisons, the more people are going to be radicalized who weren't terrorists to begin with. So this problem, you know, it's an exponential problem. Um, there are... You know, not only is there ISIS and Al-Qaeda and associated groups, but these people have been, these groups, um, these terrorists, have been attracting people from 120 countries to come to the Middle East, 120 countries worldwide. The majority of them are coming from former Soviet republics, the Middle East, and Western Europe and even um, North America. I mean, there are people um, fleeing to, uh, to join terrorist organizations from North America as well. Now, there are fewer of these foreign terrorists who, who return to their home countries um, have, have created a direct threat, but when they have done so, they have, in some instances, carried out the most lethal terrorist attack of the past three decades. And they have helped create and strengthen terrorist groups by radicalizing and recruiting for terrorist networks. So basically, you know, even if they aren't physically, personally involved in the attack, they are, they are helping to create more and more lethal attacks. And, um, you know, they, they are coming from these conflict zones like Syria and Iraq. And, um, and there are more and more of them who are fleeing. And, of course, you know, this new wrinkle is that the more of the terrorists are younger and um, more of them are women and children who have been taught, trained by ISIS. So this is an increasing problem. Now, how does that relate? Um, let's talk more about how this relates to chemical weapons and to the current disaster in Syria.
You know, right now we're waiting for President Trump and, um, and his advisors to decide whether they are going to, um, to perpetrate air, airstrikes. He has more or less threatened that, certainly said that nothing is off the table. And um, so we're in a very tense time right now. Um, and we just had, uh, you know, and this all points back to Russia because Russia is helping Syria. Um, and of course, you know, a key thing that happened is uh, just recently is the attack, the poison used against um, Sergi and his daughter, Yulia Skripal in the UK. And they have just concluded that the, a chemical weapons watchdog has concluded the same thing as the British findings, that it was a nerve agent attack. And so that is um, brewing, well, I mean, they are, fortunately, they are recovering. The daughter has been released from the hospital and uh, the father is improving rapidly. Of course, their uh, cat and guinea pigs are dead from this um, gas. So, um, you know, and, and the identity of the poison used against the father and daughter has been identified as a, a, sub, a substance called Novichok, which of course sounds very Russian, and that is what they have decided, figured out that it was. It's a military-grade nerve agent developed in the Soviet era and intimately associated with Russia. So we have the UK issue, and now we have the problem in Syria, and they are all pointing to Russia. Da, da, da. There are more red lines, as I was beginning to say, being crossed in Syria by the use of chemical weapons. And as we speak, <laughs> as I speak and you listen, there is a chemical weapons team on its way to Syria uh, to try to analyze, just like they've been doing in the UK for the father and daughter who were poisoned. Um, they are now going to Syria to see, um, to analyze the uh, chemicals that were used, the chemical weapons, to figure out where they came from. And of course, it is looking pretty, pretty certain that they came from Russia. But of course, Russia and Syria are denying that they had anything to do with this, right? Uh, it must be some other country. You know, what other country would want to do this, would care? To do this. Uh, they haven't come up with the name of another country that I have heard, um, but they are trying to say that it's not them. So um, this is the, the it's a fact-finding team from the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons. That is the team that is on its way to Syria. And um, there was a, a horrifying attack over this past weekend that killed dozens of civilians in Douma, which um, is a city near the capital. And um, there were Syrians who were found to have died from suffocation. And um, it was the, the former head, the former deputy head of the UN inspections team in Iraq said, quote, I think it looks pretty clear that a chlorine weapon was used on the civilians. So now um, the question is whether the U.S. is going to launch a punitive strike on Syria. 
And the U.S. Secretary of Defense, Jim Mattis, has said, quote, some things are simply inexcusable, beyond the pale, and in the worst interests of not just the Chemical Weapons Convention, but of civilization itself. And, you know, that, that really says it all, that, um, that it, you know, it's not just about, I mean, each time we make these rules, oh, well, you can't use that, you can't use that. And these kind of, uh, as I'll tell you in the timeline, um, Syria is just sort of not paying attention to that at, at all, as um, is North Korea, for example, not paying attention, as is Iran, for example. Not, you know, we make all these rules in these treaties and so on, and then the countries who don't want to pay attention to them just do what they want anyway. And we, in the meantime, are lulled into a false sense of security. So, and now what's interesting is that Syria and Russia have given permission for this investigation team to investigate. You know, I, I, I mean, I guess they're just buying time. Um, so Duma has finally now, uh, according to Russia, has finally now come under the government's total control. The last rebel group has been um, wiped out, essentially, or and those who weren't wiped out capitulated. Um, Russia said it's going to deploy military police in the city. And of course, if they do that, that's going to make it harder. I mean, that's sort of the trick here that they're using, that that's going to make it harder to um, find, you know, the, the, they're going to be ruining the evidence if they come into the city and make it harder for the team to figure out what, where this gas, chemical weapons came from. So we have, uh, the U.S. and other countries have condemned Syria's apparent use of the poisonous gas to attack Duma's civilians. And, you know, I'm sure they really, <laughs> really give it a damn. Oh, <laughs> we're not supposed to, oh, we didn't know. We're not supposed to do this. Oh, now we know we're not going to do it again, right? Um, so let me, let me tell you about um, some, a little bit of the history of um of this battle um duma has been it's just six miles from the capital of damascus so you know it's essentially attacking the capital um you know in terms of political significance um there are thousands of people who have fled duma uh in the last in the last 12 days 12,000 people left the city. Now, how many of those do you think are terrorists going into other countries? We don't need a whole lot, but I can assure you that, you know, even if it was uh, 10%, <laughs> um, that, uh, that is a lot of terrorists coming to a town near you. So let me, the, the history is really fascinating because um, it just shows you know, how long this has been going on and how um, they, they don't care. And it's kind of, it is like North Korea and Iran because those, um, they have been stockpiling weapons and they have been killing people and, um, you know, sometimes inadvertently their own, their own citizens in, in the development of these things. Um, and they just sort of, you know, shrug their shoulders to uh, the U.S. and to other countries that are saying you're not supposed to do this. So the war in Syria, or at least the, the timeline of chemical weapons attacks in Syria, 
starts with March 2011. And um, that happened uh, in a city called Dara. And it, there were protests that erupted in that city over security forces detention of a group of boys who were accused of painting anti-government graffiti on the walls of their school. Seems like, a, you, know, you know, starting with a group of boys. Um, I mean, these innocent, well, I mean, you know, boys who obviously have, um, um, who are idealistic, you know, who don't want to be under the Syrian regime. And so they put anti-government graffiti on the walls of their school. And, um, and um, the security forces detained them. And then there were protests. And um, the security forces opened fire on a protest and killed four people. And these are, four people are considered the first deaths of the uprising against the government. Uh, and demonstrations spread and, you know, it, it, they, each side um, increased the level of the war, essentially. So that was March 2011. In August 2011, so all these months later, Barack, President Obama called on Assad to resign and ordered the Syrian government assets frozen. Um, excuse me, but that wasn't a very big response. Then in um, August 2012, so a year later, Obama says the use of chemical weapons would be a red line that would change um, his calculus on intervening in the civil war and have, quote, enormous consequences. A year later, after he asked for Assad to resign and nothing happens, right? Um, then he says, it's a red line if they use these chemical weapons. I mean, really, could you be any weaker, right? And then um, March 2013, there was a gas attack that killed 26 people and a UN investigation found that sarin nerve gas was used, but they didn't identify a culprit at that point. And tracing the, uh, the history of the chemical weapons attacks in Syria, as I started to do, um, it goes all the way back to um, 2011. Um, I mean, that is, when you think about all the people who were killed in all this time, in any case, I was up to August 21st, 2013, there were hundreds of people who suffocated in um, rebel-held suburbs of the Syrian capital, and they had um, telltale signs of convulsions, pinpoint pupils, and foaming at the mouth. Those are symptoms from certain kinds of um, chemical weapons. And what they found was, the UN investigators found that ground-to-ground missiles loaded with sarin gas were fired on these area while these residents slept. Then, in, so that was August 2013, September 2013, the UN Security Council ordered Syria to account for and destroy its chemical weapons stockpile. Then in October 2013, Syria becomes a signatory to the Chemical Weapons Convention, prohibiting it from producing, stockpiling, or using chemical weapons. Obviously, that went nowhere. June 2014, the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons said that it removed the last of the Syrian government's chemical weapons, which obviously has turned out not to be true, or um, that Russia has been bringing more in since then.
Um, in August 2015, the uh, UN Security Council orders an investigation um, because there were repeated chlorine gas attacks by government forces against civilians. Then in August 2016, the Syrian government twice used helicopters to deploy chlorine gas. And then there was a third attack as well. And um, it also found that the Islamic State group used mustard gas. So, I mean, terrorists are already using these chemical weapons. In um, February 2017, Russia, an ally of the Syrian government and China, veto a UN Security Council resolution authorizing sanctions against the Syrian government. Um, again, it's just, you know, buying time, still using chemical weapons. April 2017, more than 90 people are killed in a suspected nerve gas attack. Um, April, uh, same, same day, Trump says the heinous, heinous actions of Assad's government are the direct result of Obama administration's weakness and irresolution. And we saw that um, in um, what I spoke about earlier in this timeline. Um, all, the next day, Trump said Assad's government has crossed a lot of lines. So now that's a year ago, and obviously he's, he's gotten, and we've gotten, his, his advisors have gotten fed up already. Um, now, April 6th, actually, um, you know, two days after this uh, gas attack, the U.S. fired cruise missiles into Syria in retaliation for the gas attack, the chemical weapons attack, and that was the first direct American assault on the Syrian government. Now, um, that, uh, you know, seems to have quieted things a bit, but not stopped things. Um, October 2017, the experts um, support the findings that, that the Syrian plane had dropped uh, sarin, gown, sarin, sarin gas on the town um, from April 2017, you know, they, they concluded that it was chemical weapons. Then April 7, 2018, um, there was this poisonous gas on the on Duma that I was just talking about before, and that's where we are. So it's interesting. A year, almost a year to the day, there was another attack, and here we are facing again the question of whether we should send missiles into Syria. Now, of course, you know, that's a very tricky situation because Russia is backing Syria, and so it is asking for um, a war on Russia, with Russia. So here's the personal, the poignant part. There was a, a wonderful essay written by a woman who, um, Marwa Awad, um, she is a spokeswoman and communications officer for the World Food Program in Syria. And it's been her job to go into Syria. Well, done a job. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if it's her job or she's volunteering. I kind of think she's volunteering. But in any, even, in, even if it is a job, per se, um, she is, she's not getting paid for as much uh, to, to counteract the danger that she's putting herself in. But I believe that it's a... It's a humanitarian volunteer um, job, so to speak. She was in the last humanitarian aid convoy to, um, to Syria. And it was March 15th, the day that the Syrian uprising started, well, it started seven years ago, but she was with the World Food Program 
And her task, let's not call it a job, her task was bringing in life-saving food to the people trapped in Duma. And she was with the white trucks of humanitarian aid that were slowly inching their way into the city. And she talks about how the reason why there is more of a need for this humanitarian food aid is because until recently, the farms around Duma enabled the residents to survive the long siege. But in the last in three months, most of the farmland has been captured and over 40% of Duma destroyed. So today, going out to buy food is a life-threatening exercise. And that has made most of the residents of Duma go underground. So she writes, yet as we drove through Duma's war-scarred streets, it seemed that everyone in the city had come out into the open to watch us. Men stood by the road taking pictures with cell phones. Isn't that a, that's such an ironic picture. You know, here they are in war-torn uh, Syria, and they come, you know, looking desperate for food, and they come out with cell phones to take to take pictures of, of, the, of the aid, you know, of, of um, something that is this, this life force, essentially. And then children ran along the convoy to escort us. Veiled women appeared on balconies to watch the rolling trucks and UN flags fluttering in the wind. Uh, volunteers came and they were offloading the, the aid from the trucks, um, giving them to the people. There are more than 200,000 people who remain in Duma, all of them needing food and medicine, most of them having gone uh, underground. And um, there are stores, shopkeepers, that have set up little shops underneath, uh, underground. Um, and of course, these shelters, you know, it breeds disease and infection. Uh, you know, this is, they're crammed together in these packed spaces to avoid the airstrikes. And um, uh, one of the men underground, who, a man in his 20s, who has created a little shop and a bakery, um, said, I feel I am living in a grave forgotten. That's Mustafa. And then um, the, this aid worker uh, came across two young boys, Hamza and Anas, and she, she wrote, they walked up to ask me a question they would repeat throughout the day-long convoy. Are you here to take us out? And she said, you know, well, we're here to bring in food. And they kept asking her, but can we go with you? They were pleading her, take with her to take them out. When will the road open? We want to go out, another boy asked. And she wrote, it broke my heart to see the limits of a humanitarian mi mission where we fall short of our purpose to ease the suffering of those who languish in poverty. So in other words, you know, they're bringing in the foods, but... Um, but, but uh, you know, this isn't enough to, to help these 200,000 people who are essentially trapped there. Um, you know, some get out, but so many of the people, especially the children, the older people, um, you know, a lot of people don't have the access to be able to get out. And then finally, um, suddenly there was an airstrike that came and everyone ran for cover. And um, there was a little boy she notices named Abdullah who stood by himself in the middle of the damaged area after the airstrike. And she said he had a traumatized, vacant look in his eyes. I asked him if he was all right, but he couldn't speak for several minutes. 
And then and there was an older woman who came up to her begging for a way out. Please, won't you take me and my daughter out? We are going to die here. And she said, what is the point of food and drink? This is the older woman who's saying to the aid worker, what is the point of food and drink if after it we will die? And so she, she ends her essay saying, now that the city has fallen, I can only hope that the people that she met, Abdullah, Hamza, Anas, Mustafa, and many others who begged to come out, have survived. Well, that puts the poignant faces on what is really happening in Syria. So thank you for listening to the Terrorist Therapist Show. I'm Dr. Carol, your Terrorist Therapist. If you would like to find out more about terrorism from me, your terrorist therapist, visit my website, terroristtherapist.com. And if you're a parent or teacher and want to build stronger nests for your kids to become more resilient, check out my new award-winning book, Lions and Tigers and Terrorists, Oh My, How to Protect Your Child in a Time of Terror. It's the first and only book about terrorism for kids. You can find it wherever books are sold or directly from the publisher at terrorismforkids.com. Terrorism, the number four, kids.com. I'm Dr. Carroll, your terrorist therapist. Thank you for listening to the Terrorist Therapist Show on Renegade Talk Radio with your host, Dr. Carroll. We hope listening to the show has made you feel calmer, more resilient, and more able to reach your dreams despite living in a time of terror. You can also check out past shows on Renegade Talk Archives for more insights.